It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Welcome to the Vertical Podcast with JJ Redick. This week we are joined by LA Clippers owner Steve Ballmer. Let's get it. This episode of the Vertical Podcast with JJ Redick is brought to you by the European Watch Company. As many of you may know, watches are a huge passion of mine. A company that I love and am truly enthused to represent on this podcast is European Watch Company out of Boston, Massachusetts. When dealing with rare and important watches, you want to deal with a company and a person that you can trust and that represents the product accurately, which is why I love curating my collection with Joshua Ganji, the second generation family at European Watch Company. I love using the European Watch Company app for smartphones. The app is always up to date with the latest editions, including new, pre-owned, and vintage watches from all the top brands, such as Patek Philippe, Rolex, Audemars Piguet, JLC, IWC, Alonga, and way more. With the latest updated inventory ready to be shipped FedEx overnight to your door. You can easily sell or trade your watches by uploading a few photos of your watch through the sell or trade page. I've done this many times with Joshua and the transactions have always been smooth. As many of you may know, there always comes a time to trade your watch up for the next one. Of course, remember to let Joshua know you are a friend of mine and you heard about European Watch Company through the JJ Reddick podcast to ensure the best possible deal. His email is easy, joshua at europeanwatch.com, and grab the app in the App Store or at europeanwatch.com. Whether you're an amateur collector or an addict like myself, European Watch Company will have the watch for your budget. If you're looking for a trusted place to curate or liquidate your collection, look no further. European Watch Company is the place. Yahoo Sports presents the Vertical Podcast with J.J. Reddick. Powered by digital media, find your voice. And now, your host, J.J. Reddick. Welcome back to the Vertical Podcast with J.J. Reddick. I think we have a great episode for you this week. It's very rare that an employee gets to interview his employer. You know, most of the time when you go for a job interview, you know, they ask you questions and maybe you asked a couple questions back. Maybe at some point in time, you get some one-on-one time with your boss. I don't know that I'd call Mr. Balmer my boss. I, I, you know, He owns the team. I probably, in a day-to-day capacity, report more to Doc directly. But Steve's the man. I mean, he owns the ship, so to speak. So this is a very rare thing, I think, to get the opportunity to interview your boss. And it, it was awesome because Steve was very forthcoming with his answers, just a fantastic perspective on things. And... I've had the opportunity over the last two plus years to get a lot of one-on-one time with Steve, which I think is very rare. It's something that I didn't really get to experience a ton in my career before that. And the thing that always strikes me with Steve is how thoughtful he is. And by thoughtful, I mean by the process in which he looks at things, he evaluates things, he strategizes things. There's a definitive process that he goes through with everything that he does in his life. And it's no wonder that he's uh, had so much success in so many different fields. We're going to touch on a lot of different things with him, you know, basketball stuff, business stuff, 
And at the end, we talk a lot about philanthropy and, and sort of what his efforts are there and what his goals and vision is for that. And I just find it really fascinating to talk to anyone that has that level of success. So we're going to get to Steve in a second. Before we get to Steve, uh, for any loyal listeners of the podcast, if you remember the Jerry Ferrara episode, we talked about his four favorite TV shows, and I had not watched The Wire or Sopranos. So I had mentioned to him that during training camp this past week that I was going to get started on one of those shows. I had a a little bit of a, a detour off that path, unfortunately, but I started Stranger Things, the Netflix show, and... It's so freaking awesome. I mean, it is such an awesome show. If you if you are a Netflix subscriber and you haven't watched the show yet, it is a must watch. It's I don't even want to describe the show, but it's just super cool and it's such a cool nod to the 80s, the decade that I was born in. Just such an enjoyable show and was obviously very happy to see that it got picked up for another season. So I guess my next show will be The Wire or The Sopranos. I'm I'm leaning towards The Wire, so Next road trip, I will start in on the wire. All right, let's get to my conversation with Mr. Steve Ballmer. All right, and we are now joined by my owner, Steve Ballmer. And just so everyone knows, um, the very first time I met Steve, he told the team, let's refer to me as Steve and not Mr. Ballmer. So for this duration of this conversation, I will be calling him Steve. This is not a, a matter of disrespect at all, as you know. Um, no, yeah. In fact, I'd be a little offended the other way. Well, good. Well, good. No, this is, um, of all the owners I've had, you've definitely been, I don't know if hands-on is the right word, but sort of personable and definitely given us the most amount of your personal time, uh, whether that's with our exit interviews or uh, throughout the season. Uh, was that something that you initially said, I want to be there? I want to be a part of the, these guys' lives? Yeah. I mean, I, I when you come in as, own, as an owner, nobody says, okay, here's the playbook. Here, <laughs> yeah. here, here's what it means to be a good owner, a bad owner, because everybody's got their own style. Uh, my theory is sort of twofold. Number one, uh, I didn't buy the team to be completely remote, show up at a couple games, and that, that wasn't my deal. I wanted to do more than that. On the other hand, I also didn't want to join and say, okay, I'm going to micromanage things and, you know, it's kind of like, whoa, it's a perception. It's just like trading baseball cards as an adult. <laughs> so that was one extreme. Uh, the other extreme was just, you know, for me to say, being an owner is kind of a job. What's the role of the owner? There should be kind of a role. Uh, Doc and I figured out very quickly that, you know, we had good respect for each other, that I wasn't going to try to micromanage. And uh, I decided that, you know, the best thing I could do is be encouraging when when our guys were doing a good job and to stay in touch and be kind of another source of data back to Doc Rivers. And that, that seems to have worked. When we do our exit interviews at the end of the year, you know, I've, I've been in this a long time. And, you know, prior to you, it was always an exit interview with the GM and the coach. Obviously, Doc holds both those hats now. So that's one interview we have to do. But I've never done one with an owner before. And I'm curious if you've found, because it's been two years now that you've done those, if you've found those to be valuable or invaluable in a bad way. <laughs> no, no, I found them to be very valuable. When I, when I was working in the corporate world, I used to do these things I called skip levels, meaning you meet with your direct reports, direct reports. 
Because otherwise, how do you know what the heck's going on? How do you even know whether the guys work for you, doing a good job? How do you stay at all in touch? So I said, okay, what does that mean in the context of being an owner? Well, on the uh, business op side, it means I got to meet with uh, Gillian Zucker's directs. On the basketball side, I have to meet with Doc's key directs on, on the front office. And I said, on the team side, uh, coaches meet with the key assistant coaches. And on the, on the team side, I said, well, I ought to meet with some of the key guys, at least on the team, and really hear what they're thinking. What's the goal there, though? Because I, I understand that you want to hear what they're thinking. But uh, like Lawrence Frank, who, who now is in our front office, he always uses the term, uh, I think it's best practice or, or best in class, something best practice, I think, is the term he uses. Is that the goal then, to figure out what's the best practice? Is this part of the learning curve as an owner? Yeah, I, for me, best practice, probably a decent word. It's certainly a best practice for me from business to try, you know, even if it's just a, an opportunity to understand what's, you know, what people are thinking, to participate and be a better partner, if you will, boss, if you will, for Doc. I mean, in other words, I'm sitting there saying, well, you know, I watched the game last night. Great game. Yeah, I have no clue. <laughs> you know, that's, that's, a little, that's a good fan thing to do, which I'd like to do. Yeah. And it's sure nice to be able to congratulate guys when they have a nice game or something's good going on. But if I want to be a good partner to Doc, you know, there's probably a little more than that. And that's why I find it valuable to hear what, you know, what guys are thinking. Even if it's off the court type stuff or stuff with families, at least gives me a sense of where, where the team is. You mentioned about just not knowing a whole lot when you first became, in terms of being an NBA owner, what it means to be an NBA owner, and what, just really the NBA, the CBA, there's so many complexities to, to this role and, and what this whole league is about. And what do you know now that you didn't know then? What are some things, like specific things that you're like, man, I wish I'd known that sure. two years ago? Sure, I'll give, you, I'll give you three or four things. Let me start on the business side because those are so clear. Uh, I had no real concept of a, a basketball P&L, if you will, how you make money that had to do with things like balancing out CBA payments between the players and the, and the teams based upon the agreed-upon revenue split, revenue sharing and how that all worked. Those are kind of formulas which are a black box when you buy a team. <laughs> you know, you can kind of count up TV money, ticket money, sponsorship. You kind of have a sense of what player payroll is going to look like because it's going to be, you know, the right percentage of the right number. It's all those other things I had no, no clue about. And what the pressures were, were in the front office, sort of the emerging fields of sports science and how does that apply and what does that mean for – uh, expense growth. So that would be a set of things. Uh, the CBA itself, if anybody thinks they have it all in their head, they're probably <laughs> one of about five people on the planet who doesn't have to go back and read the rule book. I don't care whether you're an agent, whether you're a player, whether you're, whether you're an owner, whether you're a general manager. I just think it's got a lot of detail in it. And when people... People say it. It affects so many things. It affects the way teams can do things. It affects the cost structure of the business. It affects flexibility for building rosters. And there's always seems to be one more thing I learned. I get taught by, you know, our basketball uh, front office staff. So I would say the CBA was a bit of a black box, and the fact that it pervaded everything. 
there it turns out there's a like a manual on what you can and can't do when you run a team. It's got I don't know. Wait, hold on a second. There's actually a, like a physical manual that every oh, owner yeah. gets. It's hundreds of pages minimum. <laughs> and I'll I'll get the word. There'd be something I want to do, and then I get a word. No, you you can't do that because there's been a time when owners have signed that says we cede this authority to the league. I'm not saying it's it's bad, but I remember the the first thing I did when I got to be an owner is I I ran this ad nationwide ad saying you know the Clippers are back because of all the all the crap that had happened before I owned the team. And I got the word, you're not allowed to do that. You're only allowed to, to advertise within 75 miles of your, your arena, essentially. So, you know, there's an owner's, I'll call it an owner, it's like a car owner's manual. So you got that. And then in terms of, of players, I had to figure out any new situation. I've been this way since I was a young kid. You come into a new situation with people, and I'll always come in, little quieter, a little almost, you know, sort of withdrawn, a little, little shy almost. I got to figure out what I'm doing. You know, we got guys on, you know, basketball players are professionals. They know what they're doing. They do it very well. So what is the proper role? Because the last thing I wanted to do is get in, meddle, and screw up a team. Frankly, that was a very good, is a very, very good basketball team. You mentioned uh, the CBA. And we're in the midst of sort of, uh, you know, negotiations back and forth with the owners and, and the Players Association. So this may be a, a touchy subject, but just in, in terms of a general way to talk about this, do you think that all owners get frustrated sometimes at sort of the lack of flexibility that the CBA has in terms of creating a roster, essentially, and all the, the, the exceptions and the cap and the rules? I mean... I don't care if you're a, a big market guy, a small market guy. There's got to be sometimes every owner has experienced some sort of level of frustration with that. I think that's right. Some of that may have to do with the players association and the owners. <laughs> a lot of it has to do with the way the owners work with the owners. The CBA isn't just about the way the players work with the players. It also has to do with the owners work with the owners. And frankly, the players work with each other. So how difficult it is then when as an entity sort of, in these negotiations, ownership versus players. That's sort of the, the old tagline, right? Is it extremely difficult to sort of get 30 owners to agree to one thing? Sometimes. Yeah. Uh, I mean, again, I don't. this is my first time yeah. seeing one of these negotiations, but I do think that there is an element of how owners want, and, and with the revenue-sharing discussions, because sure. essentially they happen at the same time as the CBA. The rules on how you can fix your roster, some of that's with the players and some of that's owner to owner. Players have to decide how to think about minimum salaries, maximum salaries. Uh, the owners care, absolutely, but there's a lot of you know player to player stuff there. Uh, the team in the league has to think about how you keep some kind of balance in terms of the strength of rosters, which has as much to do with the owners as opposed to the players. Uh, it's a comp it's a complicated thing and i'm sort of a newbie sitting there saying yeah. oh um you know to the existing no negotiation i have no particular comment uh that'll get commented on as appropriate by the league <laughs> but i have seen the complexity of what goes on sure you're listening to the vertical podcast with jj reddick steve i need to ask my listeners a quick question how would you like to get three home-cooked meals for free 
Well, all you have to do is remember these two letters, JJ. No, I'm not going to cook for you. Sorry. But remembering JJ is easy enough, right? Now keep listening and I'll tell you how to get those free meals. Look, we all know there's nothing better than a great home-cooked meal and no one makes it easier for you to do that than Blue Apron. Their mission is to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone. Blue Apron knows that when you cook with incredible ingredients, you make incredible meals. So they set the highest quality standards for their suppliers and only bring you the best ingredients all right to your door. Even better, each meal comes with a step-by-step, easy-to-follow recipe card and pre-portioned ingredients and can be prepared in 40 minutes or less. Now comes that part about the three free meals I was telling you about. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash JJ. I want you to think about that for a second. That's three free meals just by adding in my name. Once again, that's blueapron.com slash JJ. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Now back to my conversation with Steve Ballmer. Switching gears real quick, I want to go back a little bit to a few years ago when you did acquire the Clippers. But prior to that, um, you had been involved in a project to, to bring the Sonics or a team back to Seattle. I know the Kings were up for sale. I don't know if you were involved at all with Milwaukee and sort of seeing what was going on there, but just kind of take the listeners through the process of trying to become an owner and, and what that was like and sort of the hurdles you had to get through. Well, maybe I'll start with trying not to be an owner. <laughs> Because I had a phase that was like that. I would say probably from the early 2000s, there was some uh, interest in joining the ownership group for the old Seattle Supersonics. I had a relatively young family at the time. Uh, I thought it could be a little too much uh, for, for them to handle. I didn't want to put a burden on them have everybody bugging them at school. That didn't seem like the right thing to do. I had a full-time job. So the notion of actually, you know, participating in any way, but the most passive was tough. When the team arena issues came up, I guess I never really figured that it would really come to a point where the team would, would move. Um, but then the team gets old and I was part of a group that threw a Hail Mary to try to get an arena built. Uh, so the team could stay, uh, even with new ownership. So in a way, you could say, I first tried to stay out of the game, and then I woke up and said, shoot, there's no basketball team left in my hometown. I mean, I can't get involved with this. Then I, I, uh, I'm getting close to the time when I retire, and this fellow, Chris Hansen's a Seattleite who lives in the Bay Area. He says, we're going to get a basketball team, and, and this – I think we can get the Sacramento Kings. They need a new arena. This would be the time. Let's let's get after it. Are you in? Few of us got in. Yes. We had a plan now to build a new arena. He talked the Maloofs or the owners of the Kings into selling the thing. And then we didn't get approval by the league. We thought <laughs> we made a great pitch. And you know, the league basically at that stage came in and said, despite what happened with the Sonics, we really do want to make it really hard to move teams because it in a way it's it's very hard on fan bases you build a fan base and all of a sudden you up and move it should that should be a hard thing to do so yeah I was disappointed to say the least that that didn't work out Um, I even expressed my disappointment a little bit to the league but I hadn't yet retired so I retire 
I know this is long-winded, but I retire. This is great. <laughs> and I say, okay, I'm retired now. This is early 2014. Okay, I want to own a team. And I'd say within one to two weeks of retiring, I went to see Adam Silver. And I'd met him through the course of trying to buy the Kings. And I said, okay, you know, you're new. I'm really in. I'd like to buy a team, get it to Seattle. And he said, we really are trying not to move teams. And I was kind of like, wow, really? But what about this team that might, (laughs) might be towards the end of its lease? Or what about this team? And he said, no, we really want to move teams. And I had passed on looking at the Milwaukee Bucks uh, right before I retired. And I said, well, I better go look at the Milwaukee Bucks because teams don't sell that often. It's not like you could say, okay, I want to buy a team. And then five minutes later, you buy one. They're just not for sale very often. So I fly to Milwaukee. I, I drove around the city to try to understand the demographics and the neighborhoods. I went to a game, uh, kind of tried to get the sense of what it was like. Uh, I, I did try to buy the thing or at least try to have a discussion. That's probably better. And I was late in the process and nobody really wanted me in it because I think everybody assumed that I would try to move the team uh, later on because I tried to move one team. So I was, all right, that's gone. And I had asked Adam about every other team on the West Coast, you know, because at least they're close to my house. So we'd run <laughs> through. I could fly there. You know, I'd asked about L.A. teams, and he said, oh, they're never going to sell. And I knew Portland's never going to sell because Paul Allen, my friend, owns the Blazers. The Kings had just sold. The Warriors certainly weren't going to sell. You know, I went through Utah, Denver, Phoenix. And then you start getting four hours from my, from my house. It's kind of a tough deal. So I'm a little bummed, but I'm just trying to figure out other things at retirement. And my son calls me on a Saturday morning. He's in college. College kids don't wake up early on Saturday mornings. And he said, Dad, I've been hearing about this stuff with this guy, Donald Sterling. That team's going to sell. This is your chance. And I like L.A. I like L.A. a lot, in fact. Uh, for me, it's a, it's a great, great town. And it's only two hours, basically, flight from Seattle. Um, I pounced on it. Figuring out how to buy it was actually hard because they didn't want to sell it. So who do you go buy something from? when the people who own it don't want to sell it. Uh, there's a lot of complexity around that. I was trying very hard to meet somebody who knew Donald Sterling or Shelley Sterling. Uh, finally, uh, I did get a meeting on Memorial Day weekend uh, with Shelley Sterling, and I think from that point on, it was clear she had talked to the league, the team was going to sell. I was the only uh, sort of individual bidder, I think. There may have been one other, I don't know. But being an individual bidder was, was useful because there was no lag time between decision presented and, and answer given by me because I didn't have a group of people I needed to rope in. And I think that was helpful given the drama of, you know, the court battle between the Sterlings and the rest of it. That's just a fascinating story. Uh, I, I actually really appreciate all of the detail behind that. The, the first question maybe I should ask before I ask that question, what was your motivation for owning an NBA team? I know you're, you're a hoops guy. Um, your family's a hoops guy. You're very involved in, in a lot of the, the grassroots basketball in Seattle. But what was specifically for you? Because I know that everybody's motivation is different when they, when they buy a professional sports team. But what was your motivation? Well, nobody can dream, I think, or nobody should dream when they're a kid 
about owning a professional sports team. It's kind of a nutty thing. Like, how would you, you know, how would you ever get there financially, let alone anything else? But I, I'm a big basketball fan since probably seventh grade. Uh, and I, was, I grew up a Pistons fan, and the Pistons had, you know, they're not very good when I was a kid, but had some good success. So things, things kind of marched along. I wanted to join in and do things when I got to college, so I signed up to be a stats guy, working the ba- working the scorer's table. I kept track of rebounds and assists. You know, it only sort of fueled my my interest in in basketball. The Pistons got good. The Bad Boys that got me even more hyped up. I started going to games. I never really went to games as a kid. It's not something we could afford when I was a kid to go to games. And my dad had grown up in Europe knew nothing really about basketball so I was kind of on my own and then just as Microsoft did well I could say wow I guess it's possible to be an owner and Paul Allen who had bought the Trailblazers and Paul and I worked together at Microsoft we've stayed friends all the you know since since 19 I probably met Paul in 1977 76 and we've stayed stayed friends the whole time and Paul kept saying, Steve, you've got to buy a team. You'd love it, Steve. You've got to buy a team. And so, you know, he's owned the Trailblazers for a long time. He buys the Seahawks, the football team. And I said, yeah, this could be, this could be cool. And I like football, too. I was a football team manager when I was in college. And, but but basketball is really my first love. So I, so I was just thinking, God, this could be this could be." be cool. Not knowing what it was. I already told you. I had no idea really whether there was anything much for an owner to do. It's not like a huge job being an owner, but you know, uh, particularly if you fly down from uh, Seattle to LA, you got real skin in the game. I've always wondered this. I'm assuming you have friends that are not NBA owners. That are you have normal friends. I do have normal. <laughs> yeah. I do have normal, and, and I'm mostly curi- normal. I'm friends. curious, like when you go out and you buy a professional sports franchise. Like, what do your friends think of that? Like, are they constantly asking you about the team? Is that the only conversation you have now? Well, yeah, I have sort of various groups of friends. My oldest friends in the world, my, my oldest and best friend has been my best friend from ninth grade. Not particularly, I mean, not particularly a sports enthusiast. Yeah. I mean, he likes sports. We go to games together. He lives in Boston. We go to games together, uh, and he likes it. But it's not like, oh, what's going on? Now, his son, on the other hand, what's going on? You know, you guys are going to be good. Why did you make that move? So people sort of break into categories. There's people who really love basketball and sort of care. And I have another buddy whose uh, son played AAU basketball with my son. He wants, you know, he watches everything. He'll see moves that other teams have made. He'll watch them on the internet and fire me a text before I've even paid any attention. So I've got, you know, sort of uh, a spectrum of friends. <laughs> I would assume there's a lot of people, well, even just as like a professional athlete, like we always have people pulling at us, you know, whether it's for tickets or, you know, signing things, whatever it may be. I guess when you own the team, I would just assume that that gets, you know, amplified to just an unbelievable degree. No, no. I think the pressure on players is so much more than on an owner. Really, I do. I probably get asked twice a year, maybe, for some something signed by a player. At twice a year, I actually feel like I should be able to honor it. It's not like a, if I was getting 100 requests, 
I'd feel bad. Players have real jobs. They don't need to take that that stuff. You know, tickets. Yeah, I get asked for tickets. Not that often. Remember, I don't own a team in the city where I live. Sure. So I'm just meeting people in L.A., so I don't get asked often. But if, you know, some friend of mine either in L.A. or Seattle's coming, you know, to give away, you know, four tickets every two or three games, at least for an owner, that's not big skin yeah. off, off my back. Sure. That's doable. Um, so I, I, I don't get it. I, I think being a player would suck a lot more in terms of the amount of burden you get. You're listening to the Vertical Podcast with JJ Reddick. Steve, I have to tell my listeners about Outdoor Voices. Outdoor Voices is the active wear apparel brand for the guy who believes he could definitely nail an NBA three. First try for the guy who catches a foul ball without dropping his beer. For the guy whose last mile is faster than his first mile and who every four summers convinces himself his Olympic dreams aren't quite extinguished just yet. It's the active wear apparel for the guy who's still got it. Outdoor Voices has sourced the best technical fabrics in the world to produce streamlined gear that's built to last from the first sweat to the final whistle. Plus, it looks great without trying. It's called Technical Apparel for Recreation, top-notch activewear made for everything from trotting the bases at beer league softball to pushing the last miles of your next half marathon. You already get free domestic shipping in returns, but we'll sweeten the deal. Go to OutdoorVoices.com slash JJ, and Outdoor Voices will give you 15% off your first purchase with the coupon code JJ. That's OutdoorVoices.com slash JJ, and enter coupon code JJ at checkout for 15% off your new favorite high-quality activewear. All right, let's get back to my conversation with Steve. What about the pressure to win a championship? Is that there as an owner? Do you feel that pressure? Like as players, especially when you're on a good team and a team with expectations, and, and obviously now we're, you know, with the way the playoffs have gone the last three years, we're, we're a, a funny joke and a funny meme on the internet at this point. It's, but there's pressure on us. We feel that. We carry that burden. And we're, we're okay with that because we have a, an older group that all wants to win. But I'm curious as an owner, do you feel that pressure? Yeah, I do. I do. Uh, I, of course, can do less about it at any time than a player can. I can sort of be involved and support changes to the way the roster is put together, uh, particularly just the way our our numbers against the cap stack up. We wind up having a different, you know, probably less flexibility than a lot of teams, but in a way that's a curse, in a way it's a blessing because we have such a good, uh, you know, group of guys at the nucleus. So I can support I could support during the season just by, you know, positive energy and whether it's with uh, Doc, whether it's with, you know, players. Uh, but I feel the pressure because I know as an owner, I was born on third base. I mean, most people, if you buy a team, you don't buy a team that actually has a legit shot to win it all. Yeah. And everybody tells me, if you think this shot's going to come to you every year for the next 30 years, it, oh, I don't know. Yeah, 30 years, hopefully at least till I die. They say, no, you'll be lucky. You know, Paul Allen's owned a basketball team since 88 and a football team since about 04. Okay. He's won one championship in basically 40 years of being 
an owner. So yeah, I feel some pressure. I just, you know, it's one of these things where I say, I got, I got pressure. There's not much I can do. I have these little, yeah, you know, I think of the world as knobs and dials. Yeah. You can turn knobs and hopefully the dials do good things. I got tiny little knobs that don't move the needle very much, but the little knobs I have, I feel pressure. I'm wondering if the sort of lack of control you have as an owner, uh, what the parallel at Microsoft was. Was it the same? Did you feel like things were out of your control or did you feel like you had more control sort of in terms of the business side? I'd say I felt more control uh, at Microsoft. I grew up there. I kind of knew where all the bones were buried, so to speak. I'm not an engineer, so you could say that's a little bit like being on the basketball side. On the other hand, what we're building, I had a real role to play in what we build, even if I had less a role in how we built it. Uh, So I'd say I felt like I had a lot more control. Same issue, you can't micromanage. Anything you get into where you're micromanaging, you're not helping people. Now, I ask a lot of questions. That's, I, to me, that's a little different than micromanaging. I think I pretty much pepper Doc with questions. I pepper now Lawrence Frank with questions. Uh, I don't pepper with a lot of, oh, you got to do this, you got to do that, you got to do the other thing. Because if you want to hold people accountable, you can't, you can't tell them to change every little thing and then expect them to feel accountable. So... Yeah, I felt like I had more control. <laughs> I do. And I was a direct participant. Now, you know, I, hey, let's go. Okay, we got another guy, minimum player sign. Yes. You, know, you need me to, ma- okay, we, you know, do you need me to help make a call to somebody? I'll make a call to anybody in the offseason to try to get them to come. Most guys don't care. They want to hear from other players, free agents do, to come here. But I'll do anything to help. But I don't have a lot of footprint. It's not like you can go out there and, and shoot corner threes or anything. <laughs> no, I, no, no, I can't. <laughs> although I last can't, year, I can't even to the gym all by myself. Although last year, I guess I have to bring this up now. Last year, you did dunk a ball. <laughs> it wasn't during live action. No, it wasn't. What were you thinking? <laughs> well, the business staff came up with this idea. We knew, I knew, I wanted a mascot. I really drove this thing. we got to have a mascot because I think mascots have a a particular ability to work crowds precisely because they're not human beings. They're not sitting there screaming at the crowd. They just have a way to interact. It takes a while to build, but I really wanted a mascot. And the business team got on board with it. We ran it by Doc because, you know, Doc really wants to make sure, particularly anything that affects the game, the arena, that we're doing things the right way. Doc had a little bit of ambivalence, but he he was supportive. And they wanted to get the mascot off to a good start. And they came up with this gag that, you know, basically, if I tried to dunk a basketball, we'd give away 19,000 pairs of Chuck Taylors in honor of our new mascot, Chuck. My wife thought this was the stupidest, not stupidest, the craziest idea in the world that I would hurt myself, which had a high probability of happening. Uh, I've never been able to jump much. I'm of medium to lesser coordination. But I said, okay, let's do it. I'll give it a try. And I think it it gave a little some zest to Chuck, gave Chuck a chance to get off the ground, Chuck the condor, I guess that's a play on word. Uh, and of course it wound up being a little fun for me to do, even, even doing something semi-athletic in front. I've been up speaking in front of bigger groups, 27,000, but to try to do something semi-athletic, 
Yeah, it got it got the adrenaline moving. I'm curious if you did you call your life insurance provider before you did it? <laughs> did your premiums go up for a brief period of time? No, I, I was okay on that. <laughs> Turns out when I looked at the film afterward, I almost put my foot through the tramp area through the springs on the yeah, tramp. Yeah. I was dangerously yeah, it was close. dangerously close to an injury for sure. This is the Vertical Podcast with J.J. Reddick. Steve, give me a minute to tell my listeners about SeatGeek. As a lot of you may know, buying tickets online for sports and concerts has been a confusing process for a long time. It's always been hard to find the best deal for that game or show you want to go to, and none of those other ticket sites want to change that. But SeatGeek is different. They've come along and created an amazing app and website that makes it easier than ever for fans to buy and sell tickets. SeatGeek is always the first place I go to to look for tickets to a game or concert. I have the SeatGeek app on my phone, and I just used it the other day to look for tickets to see the Rams play here in L.A. Everything about SeatGeek is designed to make life easier for sports and music fans. SeatGeek does all the price comparison for you by searching multiple ticket sites and ensuring that you get the best possible deal. SeatGeek does all the work, and you save time and money. And SeatGeek wants to help you get the most bang for your buck. That's why every ticket on SeatGeek is given a grade based on value. You'll immediately see any underpriced seats and be able to find the best deals that fit your budget. Best of all, my listeners get a $20 rebate off their first SeatGeek purchase. To get your $20 rebate on tickets, download the SeatGeek app, go to the Settings tab, and click Add a Promo Code. Enter promo code JJ, and then SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. Download the SeatGeek app and enter promo code JJ today. Now let's get back to my boss, Steve Ballmer. You talked to our team, which I mentioned before. And one of the things you talked about was sort of your transition into full-time retirement, you know, away from Microsoft. This is uh, one part of your sort of post-Microsoft life, ownership in the NBA. You're teaching at Stanford, and you're also working to to figure out sort of what philanthropic things you want to do over the the rest of your life. And you talked about being world-class and all those things. You mentioned six things. I want to make sure I got them all right. Okay. Okay. Talent. Yeah. Team. Yeah. Tenacity. Every day, another gear. And I, the sixth one I, I wrote down is put yourself in a position to succeed. What was the sixth one? I, I think I had, five, I had five on my notes. Oh, okay, okay. And then I think I winged it on <laughs> okay, something okay, else. Okay, okay, but, right. uh, so we'll, we'll say five yeah. things to be world class. Um, and the first one is obvious, right? If you're going to be a part of anything, um, you need to have great talent, great people. And as soon as you said that, I thought to myself, you know, you worked for a world-class organization in Microsoft. You ran a world-class organization, I should say. And that organization had incredible talent. And people maybe don't think of that as, as talent, but that is talent, whether it's the engineers or the salespeople, marketing people, whatever it may be. And then you have professional athletes who get labeled as talented. And like I'm wondering if there is a difference or if it is very similar in terms of managing talent between sort of a a business, and then professional athletes. I believe there's more similarities. It's almost like if you say there's similarities, people say, oh, you don't really get it. (laughs) But there are more similarities than people uh, expect, particularly as it relates to certain kinds of employees in a larger company. Engineers are the... uh, they're the, the basketball players of the software world. Um, around our team, the Clips, 
everybody says the players are at the center and we're all we're, we're trying to make revenue we're trying to do this we're trying to do that but it's all around the notion of the players and the team is the center same thing's trying to do kind of true in the software business engineers are at the center and product definers, people who define and build products, and whether it's salespeople or finance people or marketing people, everything's around it. I will say, how do I say this in exactly the right way? Engineers sort of say, hey, we're the big talent, and they know that. I think basketball players have a similar <laughs> – there might be something similar there. I'll let you I comment on that. I want to clarify here. So in terms of ego and level of ego and ego management, there's a similarity. I'm glad you said that. Okay, all right. <laughs> no, I, I think that's that's probably okay. a, and almost engineers are the rock stars of the software world. That's right, yeah. and almost every industry has that. Yeah. If you work at Boeing, it's the guys who design airplanes who are at the center. If you are at Goldman Sachs, it's the you know the bankers and the traders at the center who you know kind of are the the rock stars, if you will. And every industry pretty much has some group of people that are kind of the rock stars. And so I see similarities in that dimension. The other stuff, uh, you know, I, I love the, the tenacity when you mentioned that. I thought, well, that's, that's Steve in a nutshell. It's just you're a tenacious person. Everything you do, you do it with passion. It's the thing I love about our team. Yeah. We, we've got guys who are incredibly tenacious, yeah. who are, you know, working out all the time, putting in the extra work. And I'm sure that is very important if you're going to win a championship. Yeah, and so the, 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 the tenacity part and the everyday part, I think, kind of go hand in hand. And I'm, I, I know I talked about Angela Duckworth's book, Grit, on Chris Paul's podcast. Um, but I'm going to bring it up again because so much of that, to me, is grit. The tenacity and the everyday part. It's, it's really just doing something repetitively over and over again when the payoff you know the the payoff is not necessarily right away right i mean it's there it's a long process and I, you you mentioned something i think uh during your first year to me and spencer hawes you were like i just can't i can't believe how long and how much of a grind and how repetitive the nba season is and so f to be a great player to be a great team you really do have to embrace the everyday you do. I think because it's such a grind, you will find there are more opportunities, even if you're tenacious as heck. That's why I split tenacity from every day. You can be an incredibly hard worker. Uh, you know, but every day means, shoot, as a team, we got to take it up a level every day. It's almost easier as an individual. You're putting in the work. You're putting in the practice. You're doing all that. You're, you know, you're training. You're that that requires grit and tenacity but to be there every what every other day and some days back to backs yeah, a little yeah. less than four games a week i think on yeah. average so basically every every other day every call other it every day. other day and you say okay you got to get it together um and you know play at i wouldn't say you know, play at the highest level you gotta play at the highest level even you're playing some of the teams that are not the best team in the league you can't go to sleep and I think maintaining that level of consistent play is, yes, it's tenacious, but it's also something else. It's being mentally there. I don't think you have to be mentally there necessarily. you got to be grit-wise there to get in the weight room all the time. But you don't have to be mentally there, not in the same way. 
to get out and play a game, I think you got to be mentally <laughs> yeah. there. You know, and I could I could break it down further to every possession if yeah. you'd like, but you got to be there. Well, there's a lot of times on the fourth game in five nights where before the game, CP and I will look at each other and be like, "Bubs, like I physically just don't have it tonight." But mentally, we know, "Hey, we're going to be there for each other. We're going to figure this out." And a lot of times we do figure it out. The other thing that was interesting to me is just sort of that part of it, sort of the, the third and fourth tenet, so to speak, of being world-class, tenacity every day. They, they go hand-in-hand hand to me, but that's almost converse to talent in a way. They don't necessarily go hand-in-hand. Hand. And I've always sort of, from afar, because I'm not part of management, obviously I'm a player, I'm, I'm not a GM, but I do have aspirations maybe one day to be part of a front office, and I'm always fascinated to see how some organizations value one or over the other or are willing to take a risk sometimes on talent when the other part of it isn't there. And I'm wondering if, if you and Doc and, and you and Lawrence, like as you've become more experienced as an owner, are you placing more of a premium on the mental side, the personality side than the physical side? I won't speak exactly for Doc on this. Certainly to me, and this is classic. I had this issue over and over again at Microsoft where I'd want to take a bet on somebody who just seemed really smart. And then they'd get nothing done. They just wouldn't get anything done. And even sometimes they'd work hard. Sometimes they wouldn't work hard. Sometimes they'd work hard. But they just didn't have the mental makeup to get things across the goal line. And so I think you got to look for hard work. you got to look for talent. You got to look for hard work, and you got to look for the ability to be a winner, and which is even a little bit different than the other two. And I've made plenty of mistakes at Microsoft betting too much on talent, uh, but I've also seen what the problem is if you get guys who have all the grit in the world. <laughs> but you know, at least at our company, it was. But they just don't get it. They're not smart enough to really get it. And I think the analogy is not bad in, in basketball. Right. If you are the grittiest player in the world, but you can't score at the YMCA, <laughs> you're not going to necessarily get a 10-day contract from the NBA. There's got to be some baseline level of talent or uh, competence, whatever it may be, to get the job done. I would never have made my high school basketball team except ninth grade when I did because it was no cut. It yeah. wouldn't have mattered. Yeah. I was gritty, man. I was out in the driveway yeah. all the time. Yeah. I had no, no, no talent. <laughs> so, so give up on it. Right. I could go take music lessons uh, for the next six months. I'm not going to be able to play a musical instrument. It's just I just don't have the talent. You guys don't want to hear me sing right now either. Um, the last one is one that I think particularly pertains us so the last tenet of this world-class idea and that's another gear the clutchness of things being at your best when your best is required it's it's really the mental side of things and you mentioned last night but the biggest question mark about our team of course is the mental makeup of our team do we have that extra gear do we have another level in the playoffs really it's about the playoffs we're going to have a great regular season we're going to win 50 plus games we're going to be a home court in the first round of the playoffs hopefully better than that hopefully second or third round of the playoffs but do we have the mental makeup to advance and win it all i think we do i think we do i think we have to believe we do 
And I think that belief is is there. Last year was a weird anomaly because of the injuries that we had, and I think that that was tough. I thought our I thought we actually played with huge mental toughness in the Portland series because I think when you lose, you know, two superstars, you know, all NBA players, that that's got to be that's got to have a mental impact. Uh, it sure did on the owner, let alone anybody's actually got to be out on the floor. But if you go back to the the prior season, the series against San Antonio, Blake Griffin wrote about it in his Players Tribune uh, piece recently. You say, "Hey, I took a heck of a lot of mental toughness the way we battled against San Antonio." You know, the Houston series is sort of a you know it is what it is. Let me just say it that way. Uh, people go back to the year before I owned the team, and I'll say, "Okay, I don't." I almost don't know, and I, I almost don't care, and I almost would hope our players don't care. You know, you just got to let go of the past. Right. You've got to sort of take the lessons of the past. But you say, okay, that was then, this is now. And I build on the fact that we had a, we have proven, and we the nucleus of our guys, people say, you know, things change a lot, but the nucleus of our team, you know, you, Blake, DJ, Chris, Jamal, Austin came in the middle of one of those years, but... But that core nucleus of folks have been together four years. In some of those guys' cases, five, six, seven more. So I think our nucleus of, of guys really kind of get it. And But that is the thing people question. That is the thing I think um, it's clear from your – just from your question today, you guys kind of have your minds around the fact that this is, you know, let's get out there and prove it here. Yeah, this this year seems different, I guess, um, I, and I, it's hard to put into words. And I'll probably go into this later as the season progresses. But to anyone that does question the mental makeup of our team, the, the example of the San Antonio series is a great example. I, I mentioned this on the podcast. So for any listeners, um, it is a humble brag. But I've been in the league ten years. So been my eleventh year. I've played in the playoffs every year, and uh, that San Antonio series was by far the toughest series that I've ever played in. And I've, we beat Boston in 2009 and we had to win game seven on the road in Boston. They were the defending champs. I played game seven against the Warriors the year before, my first year in LA. That series was the toughest series. Those guys were the defending champs. I mean, that was the toughest series I've ever been a part of. So I think we do have the mental makeup to do it. Now, some things have to go our, our way. and we, we need some breaks here and there. I feel like our team hasn't had any breaks. No, luck luck's always part of it. Let, yeah. Let's be let's be honest. You to win championship, it's necessary to be world class, but it isn't sufficient. You got to get a little luck. I don't care if you're Cleveland, you're Golden State, you're San Antonio, you're us. I mean, take a look at it. Other than Cleveland, you know, we've basically been the guys who beat champions. We beat San Antonio, we beat Golden State. Uh, you know, sort of uh, last guy to to end the, to to really show each of those teams we've got it, but you know we've got to do it, and as you say, we got to have a little luck. This is my my last sort of topic and question about uh, basketball and about the team, but I know there was a lot of talk after Blake's you know incident in Toronto and with his injury, you know whether it was the trade deadline or whether it was this summer, and there was. You know, teams, I'm not going to name the teams, but teams with a lot of assets and a lot of draft picks. And so I, I'm, what is the sort of thought process in terms of keeping the band together, just keeping that core intact and, and not 
doing something drastic. I think the great sort of word is not overreacting to something. Well, one of the things certainly I learned at Microsoft is you got to take a long-term perspective. Now, long-term for a company can be 10 years. You, you can't count on having a team of basketball players together 10 years. Yeah. The way, you know, uh, health works, the way the CBA <laughs> works, you just can't, can't count on it. But long-term can mean three, four, five, six years. I mean, you, you, you work at that kind of stuff. So I, I believe in that principle. I know Doc believes in that principle. That's number one. Number two, we got the most talented team basically in the league. Some might argue, you know, we're up there with two or three other teams or whatever. But, heck, why would you break the band up? You'd right. say, come on, let's keep going. Let's get to that next level. Uh, and, you know, why, why would you do that? Why would you do that? I mean, I can't even imagine why you'd do that. Um, you know, I suppose it's if somebody wanted to panic, it's possible. That's not my personality, and that's not Doc's personality. So I think it's very important. And we have good care. I mean, we have guys who work their butts off. I mean, if you look at the guys who've been around uh, for, you know, basically the whole time I've been an owner, you – Blake, DJ, Chris, Jamal. Uh, I don't know who else has been around the whole time. I think that's probably that's it. That's probably the crew. We're talking about guys who just work their butts off. You know, you say, okay, you got talent and you have grit. Uh, you know, I'd say, come on, why would you break the band up? Well, it's, it seems then if you're placing a, a a premium on both those things, it would be counterintuitive to take a step back in either. Be totally counterintuitive. It's to- and it is totally counterintuitive. <laughs> yeah. um, you know you, what I talked about earlier: knobs and dials. Why? <laughs> What's the probability if you turn that knob, yeah. the dial's going to get better? Yeah. This year, the next year, the year yeah. after? No, I think that's probably p- pretty low probability. Right. Leave the leave the knob alone. That makes sense. That makes sense. Uh, last thing about sort of your transition into retirement. You're teaching a class at Stanford. I'm not sure that the actual class and the title of the class. What is the title of the class? Okay, so it's, it is kind of interesting. Uh, I taught a couple of years ago, I taught at Carson Leadership in the Business School. But since, the word retirement's also funny. I like to <laughs> use it on the other hand. Uh, Refocusing. Yeah, it's giving yourself, uh, one of my, uh, uh, one guy I've gotten to be uh, friends with, Larry Summers, who used to be Treasury yeah, sure. Secretary and, and President of Harvard, I use the word retirement. He says, you're not retired. You just went from having a full-time job to having a portfolio, and you can manage your time. So I got three things I'm doing. We talked a lot about the Clippers. Uh, The class I'm teaching is actually just part of something I'm trying to do that I call kind of an annual report for government. I think if you want to understand what our government does in a factual way, because we can see plenty of non-factual, you, I'm a numbers guy. I'd say, okay, let, let me see them. I wanted to see the equivalent of business reports about the government. You know, like, okay, what businesses are we in? How much are we spending? And how are we doing? It's impossible just to go out there, you know, with a search engine and start pinging around looking for things and have anything like any integrated view. So almost since the time I left Microsoft, I've been working with a group of guys to try to put together a digestible view of the U.S. government. We need levels of that, you know, very high level, medium level, detailed level. 
but we got some economists working with us. We got web designers working with us. We got a team at the University of Pennsylvania that's working at the da- on the data and technology infrastructure with us. And yeah, I thought we're trying to we're going to try to publish Word doc, PowerPoint doc, website first part of next year. But I thought it might be fun to share that with some some students. So it's a sophomore seminar. I would I think it's quote an economics seminar, but it's a com- it's sort of economics, government, and if I was a business person, I'd say it's financial and management accounting too. We pulled together 90 different government sources or 60, I can't quite remember. And I hope what we get is something that is comprehensive, comprehensible, factual. We only use government data and no forecasts because they're always full of, you know, kind of partisan, we're trying to be nonpartisan by presenting the data just as it is. You know, businesses have to do that. If you do it wrong, you know what happens? The SEC, you're in big trouble. You go to jail if you're a company you don't do that. I figure, okay, let's let's give it a whack for a business, that's uh, a, for the government. Right, right. That's that's an amazing uh, concept. It's, it's actually something I would – can I come to your class? Um, if it's possible, uh, let me just hop on your plane with you. We'll just go absolutely. up. <laughs> I'll take absolutely. The class. I, I, absolutely. I, I find that stuff fascinating. Student, I bet the students would like it. And then for me, the third thing – uh, my wife and I are working yeah. together. Is yeah. how do you make a civic impact? You know, we've been given great opportunity to do that. Uh, whether it's wealth, uh, connections, which I sort of built up when I was at Microsoft. Uh, time, I've got time, and you know, I I don't know if we have any talent, but at least I'm willing to apply. My wife's willing to apply the brain power we have against doing things right. We've decided the thing that interests us, because there's lots of things you can oh, be interested sure. in, art, you know, healthcare research, what's going on in, in lesser developed countries. Uh, the thing we've decided we're interested in is how can we, from a civic, meaning systems change in government and a philanthropic change, a philanthropic investment, how do we help with the issues of systemic poverty in the U.S.? And we're not poor, so we don't pretend to sort of live the life. But we want to support organizations that are focused in on that. And I'm not going to say it's hard, but most of the organizations that focus in on the issues of people growing up in poverty are very small. I mean, very small, a million, two million a year. And it's, you can't reach all of them. So the question is, how do you systematically? And nobody knows exactly what works. What you're trying to do is give a kid a chance to have the American dream. Even if their parent didn't have the American dream in front of them, doesn't mean everybody's going to do equally well. You just want to increase the probability that I call it equality of opportunity. And I think that that's important. And we may make no difference whatsoever. I wouldn't be so uh, arrogant as to think we either know how or that we can, but we think it's well worth trying. You mentioned this there is a, a right way and a wrong way to give, and in, in a very smaller way, I've given to charities and you know the the entire course of my MBA career but there's sometimes you give away and you're like man that was a waste and other times you do it and you're like you know what I I could see not even necessarily a tangible benefit but I could see that that money was well used and it sounds like you and, and and your wife are really taking the time to to figure out where that money is best used in our area of focus that's right whether it's activity we've been involved in you know uh, promoting 
uh, background checks for guns, charter schools. That's a little different than philanthropy, but it, it's sort of similar too if you care about some of those issues. And it is hard to find them. And I know our players have more opportunities than most people on the planet to think about the same things because it's not just the money. Right. People want to come to you for their ti- your right. time, your influence, your ability, uh, our players' ability to, to galvanize. And so I thought it was worth mentioning, and it is, you know, it is a big part of what I do now uh, every day. I like the word resources when referring to sort of philanthropic efforts. Because resources sort of entails everything, and it's not, it really is not just money. You know, if you have any level of wealth, you can write a check. But to really be involved, to really figure out where that money is best spent, to give your time, to give your connections, uh, oftentimes, and I had a foundation for three years, and there's reasons why we stopped, but we did a good job. But oftentimes, those things are, are maybe even more valuable than just a check. If that makes sense, yeah, no, it makes a lot. It certainly makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, more so for our players, but even even for us, if we give money to something, it's an implicit endorsement because yeah, uh, it is. And uh, do you do you that. do you feel a responsibility? Like, uh, given your level of wealth, do you feel a responsibility? Do you think all? I, I don't want to pigeonhole like billionaires, but um, do you do you feel like? People at your level of wealth, that there's like an overwhelming sense of responsibility to give back? I think there's a lot of ways to contribute. And, you know, look, at the end of the day, when you die, the government is going to take a big (laughs) chunk of your wealth. And, you know, if you look at where the money government spends, it's going to go into education, it's going to go into health, it's going to go into police and criminal safety it's going to go in aid to the poor and to the old those aren't bad things to contribute to so (laughs) in a sense one of the reasons i got started on the government project is because i wanted to understand whether estate taxes are are really a philanthropic good so i actually believe i believe in that and if you don't believe in that we should fix our government i mean really we should fix our government if people can't believe uh, in what we're doing. That's how I got started is actually philanthropic to government. Now, the thing, the thing that my wife and I believe in is there's some things that philanthropic money can do that the government can't do. It can take more risks. It can try things before it wants to, you know, sort of focus the whole aircraft carrier on, a, on another project. Do we feel a responsibility I think it's an opportunity. We have a responsibility to contribute financially, and the government's going to make sure we do. But I think there's some things that we can do uniquely, and we're going to try to do them. And if they make a difference, that's great. And if they don't make a difference, I'll feel bad. But we're going to we're going to do our best uh, against that. That's fantastic, Steve. I really appreciate the time. Truly, this has been a, a fascinating conversation. I'll probably see you in a couple of weeks. Yeah, no, I will. <laughs> All right, <laughs> thanks, JJ. All right, thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Vertical Podcast with JJ Reddick. We'd really like to thank today's guest, Steve Ballmer. Remember to subscribe and listen to new and archived episodes wherever you listen to the podcast. And be sure to subscribe to the Vertical Podcast with Woj and the Vertical Podcast with Chris Mannix. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and you can now hear the Vertical Podcast Network 
every weekday at 3 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Satellite Radio on Sirius Channel 214, XM Channel 203, and on the Sirius XM app on Channel 967. My podcast airs on Sirius XM every Monday and Thursday, the Vertical Podcast with Chris Mannix every Tuesday, and the Vertical Podcast with Woj every Wednesday and Friday. And like always, you can tweet me at JJ Reddick for any questions and comments about the podcast. I love hearing from listeners. I'd also like to thank our sponsors, European Watch Company, Outdoor Voices, Blue Apron, and SeatGeek. Be sure to support them the way they support us here at the Vertical Podcast. I'll catch you next week. This has been a digital media production. Find your voice.